Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The defense has rested, the prosecution has rested, and closing arguments will begin on Monday in the trial of Derek Chauvin, who's accused of killing George Floyd. The defense will continue to claim that underlying health conditions and drug use caused Floyd's death. Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer, has been charged with second and third degree murder and also accused of second degree manslaughter. The jury will be sequestered while they make their decisions. For more to recap, this week of defense witnesses will speak to Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. She declined to testify, which I don't think that anyone who has been closely following the case was surprised by. I know that I was not surprised by that because had he taken the witness stand, he would have opened himself up to a very tough cross-examination. We already saw this week alone when the defense presented their witnesses, the prosecutors were not playing around. They were very, very, very diligent, and they would have asked him to explain minute by minute, just like they have their own witnesses and the defense's expert witnesses, why he was on George Floyd for as long as he was. So he declined to testify um, in his trial. And now, like you said, Monday, they will present closing arguments. And then once that happens, it will go into the jury's hands. And also um, this week, the defense presented their witnesses. They had seven compared to the nearly 40 that the prosecution brought right. when and, it was their turn. And one of their major witnesses was uh, Dr. David Fowler. He's a retired forensic pathologist and former Maryland chief medical examiner. So he was the main guy that was brought forth to counteract the witness from the prosecution. And he basically said that, you know, what the defense has been trying to lay out the whole time, that George Floyd died because of his underlying heart conditions, the drug use. And then he threw in some other thing, too, saying that carbon monoxide could have also played a role. This is coming from the police car when he was being held down. Right. He did. And that kind of threw everyone off, I think. He Present, he presented that and testified about that. Meanwhile, under cross-examination, Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell got him to admit and acknowledge that there isn't even a clear understanding of whether the vehicle was even on. Most people believe that it wasn't even on. And even if it were on, wouldn't that still make Derek Chauvin and the other officers liable to some extent? Because it was their car and right. who else would have been responsible to have it off. So he introduced that and the defense, the prosecution rather, I'm sorry, they were quick to refute it under cross-examination. And also Jerry Blackwell got him to acknowledge that he hadn't even considered any um, test results of whether there was carbon monoxide in his blood. Like George Floyd hadn't, hadn't even been tested for that. So it kind of really came out of left field did, and yeah. he acknowledged that he had no data backing that. That was kind of just his speculation based on his belief that the car was on and the proximity, the closeness with which George Floyd was to the exhaust pipe. There was also an issue raised of a paraganglioma, which is a tumor that they said they found in George Floyd's abdominal area. I think maybe on the hip, they might've said. So that was also brought forth. And they said that, you know, all of that stuff together is what caused George Floyd's death. But 
still, let's say all those things were in place. Would he have died under normal circumstances? The main exacerbation point was Derek Chauvin on his neck. So the defense had a really tough time laying all that out. And, you know, we'll see how successful that could have been. But it didn't really seem to strike the chords that they thought it was going to. It didn't seem so. And from the experts I've spoken to thus far, I've spoken to legal experts and just from my own impartial observations, not only did it not appear to stick, it also ran counter to what we heard so many experts say that the prosecution called and also to the medical examiner. The medical examiner said that the cause of death, uh, he did say, you know, that the restraint was at the end of the day, the main cause. He said, yes, George Floyd was not the healthiest person, but the way that he articulated it when he took the witness stand last week and also in the autopsy report was that the aggravating factor was the pressure applied by police. So like you said, if you remove that factor, he wouldn't have died probably. So that's what it's unclear that the defense made that argument strongly. Yeah. And all those reports, they determined that it was a homicide in the defense witness. He said he would have ruled it undetermined. So just kind of parsing the words there, it seems like. And they also had a former officer testify also on the defense side saying that the use of force was justified in that case. How did that fare? He did. And he also went as far as to say that he wouldn't even have qualified or classified the I don't know how else to describe it other than force, but he said he wouldn't even call it a use of force or excessive force. He said it was justified. And he basically at length made the argument that police are given, you know, free reign to act more aggressively than the average person, which they are. But that does not mean they don't have to still justify use of force. You can't just be aggressive to anyone. They have to pose a threat to you, to the public. And he made that point. And, The prosecutor who was questioning him at the time said, you know, he was even baffled, visibly baffled by that. And that expert, uh, Barry Broad, he also said that um, George Floyd was resting comfortably and it took the prosecutor completely by he was completely shocked by it, as I think many people were like, I don't think anybody would describe the way that George Floyd was was resting comfortably. Yeah, I think Barry Broad even had to take some of those things back under cross-examination. So just little things falling apart on the defense side. As we mentioned, the closing arguments are going to happen on Monday, and you know we'll see how quickly the jury comes back with a verdict. Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This week, we also saw the FDA and the CDC pause the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine while it reviews data after finding six women who came down with blood clots after receiving the vaccine. One of those women died. Still, this is a very extremely rare occurrence. There are only six cases so far after almost 7 million shots that have been administered. For more on what we know about this pause, we'll speak to Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal. These were extremely rare, but the um, events themselves were serious. One of the women died. And the issue seems to be a a very rare type of clot that affects the brain, and it's called a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. And this is something that just also happens very rarely apart from the vaccine. But what I think caught the attention of health officials was that This was happening in a small number of people who got the vaccine, and they were having 
low blood platelet counts. And so these two things together were unusual enough that health officials think there there could be a cause and effect here and that it's not just a case of someone getting the vaccine and experiencing an adverse health effect that they might have experienced anyway. And so that's where I think the caution comes in. And, and that explains, I think, why, despite the small numbers, health officials wanted to take this pause. So in this time, they're going to study the data. They're going to look to see the health of these people that got it and see if maybe it's something that would have happened regardless of the vaccine or not. They're going to be looking into all of that. Now, the other question that arises out of this is how will it impact the vaccine rollout? Officials have said it won't really impact it that much. There's enough doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, which we haven't heard any really serious side effects about. There's enough of those doses to go around. And uh, I know people that were scheduled for J&J vaccines, you know, they were rescheduling them for one of the others. So the impact should be minimal, at least they say. The J&J vaccine was the third one to be authorized. And so it's made up a smaller share of the overall vaccine supply since it was authorized in late February. Now, it's true that a lot of people were looking forward to the arrival of the J&J vaccine, both to boost the overall supply of vaccines and, you know, for some people make it a simpler and more convenient option because it's a single dose as opposed to the two doses for the other vaccines. So people were counting on it to really augment and play a big role in the overall vaccination effort. But that said, with this pause, and and we don't know how long it will last, it could be a few days. But um, even with that, there are still many millions of doses of these other two vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna that are out there and that really mitigate the overall effect of losing vaccinations with the J&J vaccine for at least for a few days. Right. Now, you know, the other thing, and we've talked about this before, Peter, vaccine hesitancy. It's a tough call when, you know, you have such few cases, rare instances of this happening to pause something like this. As it is, there are people that are hesitant to take the vaccine already. This could further that. We were hearing Mm -hmm. about AstraZeneca and blood clot issues. We're hearing about this one now. The AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines are both viral vector shots, so they're made similarly, you know, not exactly the same. But the mm-hmm. vaccine hesitancy now comes back into the question. Yeah, and I think, you know, there have been signs that vaccine hesitancy was declining. Surveys showing that, you know, a smaller proportion of people were saying that they just don't plan to get vaccinated compared with earlier on in the, in the mass vaccine rollout. But certainly that's a concern that health authorities have to sort of deal with. I mean, you know, they talked about it today, officials from the FDA and the CDC, that They wanted to get this information out there, but they did so knowing that it could be sort of fodder for the people who are very skeptical of vaccines. And so it's certainly something to watch to see what effect now this risk and and the communications about the risk um, to see what effect that has on vaccine hesitancy uh, going forward. Yeah, I mean, you still have to look at the numbers, though. Only six of these cases and seven million shots administered. That's a pretty good track record. So, you know, we'll see how long the pause is. We'll see what the officials say after they look into it. And, you know, it will probably be, be resumed, uh, you know, after after some time, unless they find something. You did note in the article in clinical trials, there were a couple of uh, other blood clot issues that came up, but they were very minimal as well. So there have been signs of clots, generally speaking, although I don't believe that this particular type of clot was spotted in the clinical trials. 
you know, I think we'll, we'll just have to wait and see how long the pause lasts and just even to be sure whether health authorities uh, allow vaccinations to resume. There's going to be a meeting tomorrow of a committee of um, outside experts that advise the CDC on vaccines. And so they're going to examine all the available evidence and discuss it on a public forum. And then I believe they'll take a vote on what they think should happen next. And if I could just add that one thing that does, I think, factor into whether or not, or at least how soon they'd want to lift the pause on vaccinations with J&J is that we do have these first two vaccines approved that have very high efficacy and with not really not with this type of safety risk um, associated with them. And so in light of that, in a way, the health authorities can afford to err on the side of caution and knowing that it's not going to really throw a wrench into the mass vaccination campaign. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. If you have money invested in cryptocurrency, you most likely had a good week. Coinbase, the largest exchange for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, became the first major crypto company to go public, and it surged in its first day on the stock market. With Coinbase going public, it also pushes cryptocurrency into the mainstream as something to seriously invest in. For more on this, we'll speak to Paul Vigna, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. It came out really big. It's in the afternoon, it came off the highs. But Coinbase is one of the best-known names in the, the sector, in the crypto sector. They're a big exchange based here in the United States. And from the start, they've kind of been a firm that was very much focused on working with banks, working with regulators, trying to make Bitcoin accessible to mainstream users. In the early days of crypto, that was really a kind of a, a big difference between them and most of the other exchanges. And they grew and grew with that goal in mind, right? We're going to make Bitcoin accessible to the mainstream. So for a lot of people who get interested in Bitcoin, they say, oh, how do I get Bitcoin? People say, go to Coinbase. And they do. And it's, it's a, an easy platform to use. You know, you go there, you sign up, you have to give them some identifying information, you link your bank account to it so that you can fund your, your balance, and you can buy and sell Bitcoin. So as Bitcoin has grown, as the, the price over the last six, eight months has, has gone up just exponentially, Coinbase has gotten a lot of attention and a lot of new users, and that's translated into a lot of revenue and really large profits for them. And it seemed natural that eventually they were going to tap the public markets. And that is what happened today. Coinbase, as you mentioned in some of your articles, they're uh, mostly tied to Bitcoin and the ups and downs that they go through. But they do exchanges in, in a lot of other cryptocurrencies as well. They make a market in about 50 cryptocurrencies. Obviously, Bitcoin is the biggest one of those. But like you said, there are other ones. And what's interesting is that while their revenue is so closely tied to trading, most of it's from transaction fees, they do kind of see that they need to expand from that. And they're trying to build out sort of broad suite, you would say, of financial services. They want to come up with all kinds of products. They want people to come in and start with trading, but then they want to come up with other financial products to sell them the way any kind of brokerage house would really, uh, or any kind of large bank would. They're not a bank, I should point that out. But I mean, that's what they're kind of going for. They're kind of trying to become this this sort of all one-stop shop for anything you'd want to do related to cryptocurrencies. How has cryptocurrency and Bitcoin been doing throughout the pandemic? We've been seeing a ton of stories about you know record highs. Bitcoin hit a high today. 
or on Wednesday when Coinbase went public. So they've been doing pretty well. They look, Bitcoin's been doing great. There were two things really that happened is, is one, during the pandemic, like a lot of things, people were stuck at home and they were looking for things to do online. They were bored. And a lot of people just started trading Bitcoin. Robinhood, PayPal, some other of the online trading apps opened up their platforms to trading crypto. So a lot of people got involved. The other thing was that you've had a lot of institutional money come in, and that sort of signaled that this is an okay arena for people to play in. Not that it isn't speculative and not that you can't lose money in it, but just that it's not exactly this anarchistic, kill the bankers kind of world, that it is something more responsible Still, I have to point out, very speculative, very, you know, high chance that you could lose money if you get to, you know, if you play it wrong. But so you, you had this sort of institutional nest signal that it's okay. So you had institutional money coming in, you had retail money coming in. So you had a lot of money coming in at a time where people were looking for things to do. And that kind of drove this big surge in what is and has been a small market. When you compare it to the rest of the capital markets, it's gotten bigger over the last year, obviously, but it's still a relatively small market. So small market, a lot of people come in and it just drove the price up. And that just becomes this sort of self-sustaining cycle. The higher the price goes, the more people get interested, the more people come in, the more that drives the price. And it's, you know, it's just builds on itself. It totally does. You know, this month, the total value of the cryptocurrency market passed $2 trillion. But in the meantime, you know, for the founders of Coinbase, you know, you've, you mentioned one of your articles, Brian Armstrong, he's a co-founder. Uh, I mean, he's a, a billionaire now just because of this. He's uh, probably worth about $20 billion for his stake in Bitcoin and puts him right, right. up there in one of the wealthiest people in an instant. He's going to be worth somewhere north of $15 billion. Could be as much as twenty billion, depending. That easily puts him in the top one hundred or so people on the on the planet. Thirty eight years old, started the company just because he had an idea about making Bitcoin accessible to people, and now he's you know it has paid off for him. So, final thing, you know, as I mentioned, you know, Bitcoin, everything really kind of got a bump today. So, other than Coinbase going public, and you know, a lot more people maybe having some access to it, you know, what changes right now for the cryptocurrency market? When you think about crypto, you have to realize that so much of it is driven by momentum and sentiment. So the Coinbase listing, now that Coinbase is part of the public market, and just the hype alone around that, and the signal that it sends to people that this is part of the mainstream, this is part of the real world, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, you can't see it, but I'm using it, yeah. That, you know, this is not just some weird anarchist project. This is an actual asset class. This is something you can invest in. You know, the the message that this listing sends just bolsters that momentum and that sentiment. Doesn't mean that this is never going to turn. And Bitcoin has a very well-defined history of going up by quite a lot and then coming down by quite a lot. So it can happen again. But this listing in this moment just sort of, it really feeds into that momentum and that sentiment-driven trading. Paul Vigna, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. 